Welcome back to another episode of Outside In. I'm your host, Wes Rashid. Now, in the land of the hardest game, where the bravest of hearts bend and break, stories as inspirational as Frank Bruno's are rare. The British boxer whose country will forever be proud of a man who refused to give in. The man who knew one day he'd be king of the world. He achieved success with his heart and his humility that earned the public affection that even today is still unrivaled. And he happens to be my childhood hero. Let's speak to the man, the legend himself. Hello, Mr. Frank Bruno. Hello, Wes. How you doing, boss? Thanks for the kind words. (laughs) (laughs) My pleasure. Pleasure is all mine, Frank. What I'd like to do is just start off with the early years. And you 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 grew up as the youngest of six children in South London. So what was your childhood like, Frank? It was um, it was all right, you know. My brothers and sisters used to spoil me because my brother was my half brother. One of them was my half sisters, but we, they showed so much love when I was the youngest one. They was about ten years older than me, you know what I mean? But yeah, they, they were good, good times, very good times until I got to about twelve and I got sent to a ball school, and then things changed from there. So, what drew you into boxing? Wes, my dad bought me a pair of boxing gloves when I was about eight and he sent me down to the boxing club to do some boxing. He didn't come with me. He sent me there by myself to go and join in and to get beaten up by a policeman. But I went back the next day, went back the following day and I just joined the Elseville Boxing Club as a junior, you know? At that point, did you know that you had a talent for boxing? I knew I had to tell him for something. I was always fighting. I thought I was a black Bruce Lee. So I used to go around <laughs> kicking and practicing. Some of my friends were into Kung Fu and karate and that, you know what I mean? And in Clapham Junction, we used to bunk in to go and see the karate films that they used to have on there, you know what I mean? So yeah, it, I thought I one minute I wanted to be a boxer, one minute I wanted to be Bruce Lee. I read somewhere that you dreamt about becoming a world champion at a very young age. So did this kind of self-belief yeah. come easy for you? It did come easy for me because like, I trained every day. Even if, even when I was about 12, I was doing training and building myself up. And I went to the school and the teacher made me out a programme to do to improve my strength and that, you know. So I always had that in my mind. Boxing has always first come. And there was a man at Ballstool that like, pushed you down the path of boxing, Mr Irwin. Yeah. What did he Good mean man. to you? He meant quite a lot to me. He was a teacher and he had to be a tough teacher in that school because it's a ball stall. It's a mini prison, it was like, you know what I mean? But they taught us manners, they looked after us, they taught us on walks and just taught us about certain different things in life, you know? And Mr. Irwin was a, I rate him very, very good. He's a very nice man and he he, he taught us so much. He could do Eskimo roll, go camping, uh, hiking, you know what I mean, judo, you name it, he, he could do it, you know what I mean? And he was, when he came to the school, he, he was a good, Fresh air. He was a good man. And he still is a good man. Ah, that's nice to hear. So how did your family feel about you boxing, Frank? Uh, my mum didn't like me to want to be a boxer, you know. She, didn't, she hated me even making the sound of boxing. But my brother encouraged me to do it. Um, one of my sisters, like, you know what I mean, was behind me. The family was behind me in a, in a funny way, but they didn't want me to do boxing. I was dyslexic, so I couldn't have done much else rather than be a getaway driver for a bank man who's going to rob a bank or something like that. So I just stick to boxing, what I liked and I loved. Yeah, that's that's the best way, isn't it? Just follow follow your passion. Yeah. When you started in the amateurs, were there any boxers that you looked up to at the time? Because I'm just thinking about the heavyweight landscape around your time as well. 
I used to, when I was a junior, I was taken down the um, the Wellington gym, George Francis gym in North London, mm-hmm. and I was a sparring partner for Lottie Moali for about a year. I was I used to go down the gym and get some experience. He used to batter me all around the ring because <laughs> I didn't know myself to, I didn't know boxing. Uh, all I went into boxing, I had strength, I had determination. I didn't have much skill, but determination overrid the skill and whatever. I, I, I had cricket balls, you know what I mean, bigger than elephants, and I would go forward to get myself very fit. So I would never say that I was a Sugar Ray Leonard or anything like that, but I trained hard, whatever I, I did, much more harder than not anyone else, but I did put myself through a lot of pain, a lot of training, different skills and that, you know? Do you remember your first sparring session? Yeah, I remember it very, very well. It was a guy called Gary Leverton. He was a policeman from South London. John Leverton was his dad, who was in control of the, 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 the gym. But yeah, Gary Leverton was his name. A dangling, awkward southpaw. And he knew how to go around the ring. And he beat me up, to be honest. <laughs> he beat me up all the time I went in the ring with him because he had experience. He was long. And he was confident and I didn't know what I was doing, but I went down there again and again and I got used to it. And I won the, won the junior championships and I went to a club called the Philip Games and I won the ABAs, the youngest one to win the ABA championship and it still stands today. That was in 1980. How crucial was it then to have a good team around you at that point? It was very, very important. I went down to the Philip Games and Fred Ritz was uh, involved with the Philip Games and we'd done very, very well. I didn't have many fights. I only had 21 fights. And in that 21 fights, the ABAs came into it, you know? So it was um, a dream come true, to be quite honest, because it's always nice to have some sort of title behind you to go into professional ranks, you know? Well, I heard that you almost didn't have a professional career because in your book, 60 Years a Fighter, you went to Colombia, I think, for your eye. So what happened there, Frank? I had to go and have an operation. I had quite a few operations in my eye. There's a doctor called Dr. Barrico, who was a very, very good doctor, a very special man. And he lengthened the sight of my eye. But unfortunately, I got detached retinas and torn retinas, and it wasn't too nice. So over my career, I must have took off about three years off me to get my eyes all right again. How serious was it at that point, though? Did you know how serious it was? Um... In the Oliver McCall fight, he'd done my eye in the first round, you know what I mean? And I, I just, I was so hyped up, I, I just dismissed it. You know what I mean? I see it was hurting and whatever, but I had to go forward and do what I had to do. I couldn't bottle out or nothing like that. I had to stand toe-to-toe like a warrior. He's a dangerous guy, but um, he'd done my eye in the first round. But, I, you know, even if I had to take out my eye, I was still going forward and full, you know? When did you turn professional, Frank? I turned professional when I was about 19. And very my young. first fight was at, um, yeah, yeah, very, very young. But unfortunately, as you said, the eye problems, they were kicking me back because I couldn't pass the rules and regulations. So I had to get an operation in Colombia. Yeah, and I remember, uh, I, think, I think at that time, George Francis was basically part of your team. He's a legendary yeah, trainer. Very. And Jimmy Tibbs. Jimmy Tibbs Jimmy was a Tibbs. good trainer as well. Was Frank Ter- Black and Terry Lawless. Terry Lawless was your manager at the time, right? So they, he, yeah. he must have played a part in sending you off to Colombia. It must have been quite scary having he to go to Colombia. He played a big part Yeah. by myself. Yeah, it was very, very scary. I didn't even understand. My mum said to me at the airport, do you know what they're doing, Colombia? I said, no, mum. 
you don't know what they're doing in Colombia. I said, no, I don't know, mum. And she goes, you are so stupid, but I love you. Look after yourself. And <laughs> I went there and the Pete was all right. I, went, I got out of bed one day and I weren't supposed to get out of bed and I got told off. But yeah, good adventure. The country's wicked, but I can't understand how every house has a man with a gun. <laughs> and then you go up into the ghetto and it's very, very rough, you know? Yeah, very yeah. Very rough. Not quite like the UK, hey, Frank? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Don't give thanks. There, there are differences in fighting style between the amateur and the professional. Did you have to right. change your fighting style or your training? Yeah, definitely. You know, I mean, three rounds was at the door. You know, I mean, sometimes I think that's when it was 15 rounds when I first started. But it's only one time I had to go 15 rounds. That was Tim Witherspoon, but I got to the 11th and he stopped me, beat me up, you know, but yeah. When did Cass Pennant come into your life, Frank? Cass Pennant came into my life when I was um, about 18. I used to go, my transport was in roller skates. And I was at Canning Town Station in roller skates going to go and train. But these skinheads was on the same platform as me. And I, I, I don't know, I was naive in thinking that the skinheads wanted to bother me. So my mate was across, no, not my mate at the time, this guy was came across from the other side and they went away because I was in the corner and they were coming closer and closer to me. And I was wondering, why are they moving down there? It seems kind of funny. And I was on my roller skates and I didn't know what to um, think or whatever, but Kaz came over and he goes, you're right, mate. And they disappeared. And yeah, we become friends from there. Very, very good guy. Very, very knowledgeable about life. And he's a nice, special friend of mine. You know, if I have any trouble mentally or trouble anything, you know what I mean? I'll go and see my mate Cass. So I want to talk about your first pro fight. It was in 1982. So having turned professional at a young age, was there a lot right. of pressure on you for that first fight? There was a lot of pressure on me for the first fight because a lot of confusion that was going on with my eye and et cetera, et cetera. But when, uh, when they said I had to fight at the Royal Albert Hall with 5,000 people, because I think Charlie Magro was topping the bill at that time, and I, when they started shouting out, Boo, no, Boo, I was starting to wet myself in the, in the changing rooms, wondering, <laughs> what am I doing? They are going in there to get beaten up, and they, they really made me scared. Not scared, but you know, it's something new. But I went in there, it was a guy called Lupe Guerra, and I think the first or the second round I beat him, but it was on its own. It was a beautiful atmosphere, good vibes, but how scary it is than the, the amateurs. And you don't wear no shirts as a professional. And that's when it comes to be a rough, rough game. Because everybody's fighting for their mortgage, five foot um, money on the table and food on the table and whatever. So you've got some hungry guys in the, in the game. I imagine that just gives you that injection of confidence as well, getting the first fight under the belt and doing so well as well. Uh, the pressure. Sometimes they say I overtrained, but I was training like a mad, not mad person, but just training very, 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 very hard. I used to do some karate training, like knuckle on the ground and press-ups and all different things like that to improve your, your condition, you know, your fitness. How would you balance like the technique and the physical training then? There's a lot of stretching and there's a lot of mind, like when you're punching, you know, I mean, sometimes people punch, but if you put your mind into your punch, it's much more dangerous than, it, you know what I mean, if you don't put enough, your concentration, you put into it. Karate training is all different things, but I think it's a mental thing as well, rather than a physical thing. Yeah, and that technique that you had with your right hand, you know, knocked a lot of people out. And in your first 21 yeah. fights, 
you won all of those by knockout. Yeah. So was there a lot of hype building around you at that point? Because Britain hadn't produced a heavyweight champion for a while at that point. There was a little bit of hype. You know what I mean? There was a little bit of pressure because I didn't have much amateur fights. So it brought me into professional and Terry sort of like not muddle covered me, tried to feed me into the professional games in a, in, a, in a positive sort of like way. So I had uh, Mickey Duff, Jarvis Astaire, Mike Barrett and Terry Lawless. They were a team, but you know what I mean? They they were they looked after me, you know? I was their protege or whatever. So when I went out there, I was their, not a sweet boy, but you know what I mean? One of their favourite people that could put bums and zeeks. Yeah, yeah. When you when you lost for the first time, it was against Joe yeah. Bone Crusher Smith. He was an experienced yeah, operator. Smith, yeah. Did that relieve yeah. some pressure off you then? It did in a way because people was expecting me to do it. When you knock out people, you look spectacular and they don't realise that I'm I'm new to the game. I had a lot of power, so it was difficult for me to hold back my power when I went in the ring. I couldn't really keep a guy standing up because the nerves that I had in me and the determination that, you know what I mean, it's either him or me, I had to be very, very strict in there. So I used to train so, 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 so hard and I was solid, you know what I mean? But I could go in there for 15 rounds or, or, or 12 rounds and, you know what I mean, feel very, very, but the fights, most of them didn't go that far. And you mentioned Tim Weatherspoon. I know after that loss, you yeah. went on to win the European belt and then yeah. you faced... You faced Tim Weatherspoon for your first title shot. Yeah, you came really close uh, and boxed really well. Yeah. But what did you what did you learn from that fight? What did you learn from that loss? I learned you got to pace yourself. Don't get hyped up. Walk it. You know what I mean. Rather than sprint it. You know what I mean. And move around. He was a very a smooth and very very nasty operator. He's a very very good boxer. And I don't think I should have been in there. To be, I was too young. Too, and too inexperienced to go with the person like that. But it's a good experience going with him because I lasted about 11 rounds, he beat me up. And sometimes you've got to take a beating to appreciate when you win and don't go in that position again. So it was a lesson. He taught me a good lesson by beating me. Because if I were the one, I would have been the undisputed champion of the world, less experienced, and I would have gone in there with some tough, Guys, when I didn't, you know what I mean? Some guys that I may have won and it would have been a war, all of them. So I had to be guided pretty carefully, you know? Yeah, back then there was like Mike Weaver, Michael Dokes, Tony Tubbs, oh. Tim Witherspoon. Oh my gosh. I think oh Larry gosh. Holmes was still fighting at that point, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, definitely Larry Holmes was fighting, you know what I mean? Pinklin, Thomas, all the, all yeah. the lot of them. And they're constantly Trevor Burbick. You know, mm. this, it was a, a hot, hot Greg Page. All the different fights that you're naming there, and you're speaking from experience, I can tell. You know what I mean? So <laughs> you, you, know your, you know your business. Thanks, Frank. Appreciate it. How old were you at that point, though? I think I was about 23 or 20, 23 or, or 25, I think I was. I'm, yeah, because what, uh, what I noticed is in those, like your early pro career, you were like boxing, like literally every, every other month. month. Yeah, every month. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, and um, right. if you look at boxing today, that doesn't happen. You know, the likes of Anthony Joshua yeah. fighting once a year. Same thing with Tyson Fury, yeah, yeah, these yeah, sorts yeah. of things. Was that just like the yeah. norm, the way things had to be done back then? Yeah, it, it was the norm to get me to get as much experience as I can. They took me to America for about two months and we explored all the Tyson. We met him, Casamado. We went down to Vegas to the gyms and that. 
trying to get experience and went out to Pennsylvania to go and see Larry Holmes. He was very, very kind to me and very, very helpful. You know what I mean? Talking to Muhammad Ali, a lot of celebrities were talking to that went to a fight out there and they were there for the fight, you know? But yeah, trying to push yourself and send yourself in the right sort of way. It was um, interesting, I had a good life. When you went out to the US, because you mentioned that you met a young Mike Tyson back then when you sparred with yeah. him. What was he like then? Right. He was, you can see that he had a lot of uh, anger in him. They're talking from 42nd Street, not for, literally 42nd Street, thereabouts. It was a very, very, very rough place. So they took him out of that and put him in the Catskill Mountains. And he met a guy called Casamado. And we went to the training camp and we were sparring for about two weeks together with a lot of other sparring partners there were. But he was there, you know, but a good guy. You can see that he was a very dangerous time bomb waiting to get off. You faced him in 1989. It's your second yeah. title shot. And that fight got delayed like five times. What did you... You're, you're, being, you're underestimating him about eight times, Probably not eight. five. <laughs> eight times. You're being generous. I'll tell you what, though. It must have been pretty hard on your preparation. It, you... it, it burnt me out because yeah. I, I wanted to try and keep fit. I wanted to try and peek to it. But every time I peek to it, I, he's, he's trying to commit suicide. Every minute he's had an argument with his wife. Every minute, you know what I mean? It was horrible because I went to... Arizona, we set up a training camp there. We went to um, another place, we set up a training camp, Springs, and it, it, we had to cancel it. It was draining. Yeah. Very, very nasty, but that's how boxing goes. How did you stay motivated, Frank? You had to stay motivated. Anything you do in life, you know what I mean? In boxing, you can get a cut. You can bust your arm. You can bust your ribs. you got to duck and dive and ab-lib and go on and do what you got to do because... Boxing, it's all about the family as well. When you do well and the, the money comes in, you've got to provide for your family. And you, I'm working for my family, to be honest, the girls and my son as well. You rocked him in the first round in that fight with a left hook. It almost changed the course of the fight. So I was trying to keep him off, but I'll give him credit. He was on point, Tyson. Very, very much on point. The better man won. I went in there trying my best. The best went good enough. So I can't say no more than that. Yeah, overall, you were happy with your performance, yeah? I tried. I went in there. I'd done what I had to do. But as you said, you, 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 the fight was postponed about so many different times. And taking that into consideration because, you know what I mean, I think I, I've reached my peak too much in, what, eight times the fight was postponed. So yeah. I had to get myself ready and down and ready and down. And I think they knew what they were doing. Because firstly, the fight was supposed to be at Wembley. That's right, but, yeah. But Don King... And Donald Trump gave Mickey Duff a briefcase full of money to change the fight over to Vegas. There's nothing you could do about that, but, eh? you know, nothing you can do. No, you can't, I'm not making excuses, but that is life in, in the boxing game. So um, we're having a chat. So sometimes I'm not feeling sorry for myself, but that's the way the cookie crumbles. Well, I mean, when you came back, you came back a hero. I remember that. And you went on to, to fight Lennox Lewis, 1993. So that was four years later. Definitely. And it was, yeah. you made history because it was the first time two British heavyweight yeah. boxers had competed for the WBC World Championship belt. Yeah. And it, everyone was rooting for you. You were up on the scorecards, but he took you out in the yeah. seventh. So what motivated yeah. you at that point to continue boxing after that loss? I wanted to win the WBC World belt. That was my aim in life. And, that, you know what I mean? Hooker by crook. I had to go in there. So I couldn't give up because I knew 
that if I give it, I could look with myself, live with myself for the rest of my life. Every time I look myself in the mirror, I feel down and miserable. But that's what I wanted to do. And I already had it for five minutes. Yeah, I, I worked for it. Yeah, you won it <laughs> at the end of the day. Yeah, and unbelievable. I, I just remember back then, because I watched that fight, and afterwards, like, the press were, and commentators and analysts, and people that you knew in the boxing world were trying to say, well, yeah. maybe he should retire at that point. But you had the, yeah. the foresight to just keep on going and digging in to, to try and no achieve choice. that goal. I didn't have no choice, you know I mean? When people are in their own circle, but I, had, I was in my own circle, even then my wife turned me to back up. This one turned me to back up. Terry Lawless turned me to back up. Some dickadary told me to pack up, but I couldn't pack up because I couldn't live in myself if I didn't fulfill what I had to do. I left it a little bit late. You know, I got near to the top of the hill and kicked down very, very quick. But in life, sometimes determination, willpower, if you believe in yourself, sometimes it will come true. And I did believe in myself that if I keep on persevering, that I will get that belt. And it's part of history. Nobody can take that away from me, you know? And I thank God every day. That's lovely to say, Frank. And um, mm. just just on that, you fought Oliver McCall, 1999, and you become yeah. the new WBC World Heavyweight Champ. Can you tell us about the moment that you became world champion after four attempts? <clears throat> oh, it was unbelievable. Uh, years ago, we invited Oliver McCall to come over to England to do some sparring with me. And he'd done pretty well. He touched my eye again in the gym. And, you know what I mean, later on, about six years, seven years, we were going to fight each other. Amazing. But, yeah, he's a very tough guy, Oliver McCall. And I knew this guy's going to be very, very tough. So I've had to bulk up a little bit, set your mind in a different sort of like way and go. Because he, not like a bully, if you see any weakling, he will jump on you like a lion. So, yeah, I'm glad that fight came out. It went 12 rounds and I won my dream come true, the WBC Heavyweight Championship belt. You talked earlier about the nerves around your first pro fight. So were there any yeah. nerves? What were the nerves like, you know, in the dressing room before this fight? Oh, it was it, it, it was nasty because I had to get myself in a nasty sort of like way because I know he was a bully. So it was very, very intense and very, very calm. But I knew what I had to do. I knew that we practiced on using the jab and move, sticking the jab. And when he comes closer to you, tie him up and weigh him down a little bit and do all different things, everything come together. And that was like a dream come true, unbelievable. Even when I look at the belt, I can't believe I got it, you know? Is that one of the proudest moments of your life, Frank? Yeah, it was very, very proudest moment of my life. Very, 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 without a doubt. Did you think it was your last chance at that point? I, I would have got, think it would be my last chance, but if it, I would have found some way of getting, getting, getting on balls. But I think... I've got my chance and I've done it and I'm grateful for that, you know? Just reflecting back then, what do you think is the biggest lesson that you've learned throughout your whole career? Biggest lesson? <laughs> I don't know. Human beings, I don't know if you can trust them <laughs> anymore. A lot of, there's a lot of half a dailies out there. I would, um, I would say when I look at you, you're a guy that has never given up. Like your resilience, you know, yeah. whether that's just like instinctive or... You've had to learn that throughout your life. I've had to be learn that. When I was young, I had to fend for myself very, very early. I was very, very advanced in my age. I used to hang around with some dodgy people when I was aged. But yeah, believing in yourself is a very, very 
nice thing to do. And I believe in myself. Sometimes I doubt myself. Yeah. But sometimes it's good to doubt yourself to get your nerves going, to grit your teeth and go in and use that for you rather than against you to drain you down. It's a lot of psychology in boxing. And you learn that over the years. A lot of things are in is is in the mind. It's yeah. how the mind set. And if you focus, if you meditate, you know what I mean, you get in some zones and you learn how to just let things just ride over you rather than tense yourself up and drain yourself and put another grey hair on your head. How much of your career do you think you put down to mental strength versus physical strength? I think half of it. 50-50? 50-50. Definitely half of it. I'm a, a Scorpio. I'm a very, very determined guy. But if you said that I had to fight uh, a tough, tough guy, I would start training now. If it was, say, next year the fight was going to be on, I would start training now for the guy and I would put so much into my training to come in there and try to be the strongest and the fittest I can be. You know, I haven't got much skill, but the skill I've got and the determination what I've got, uh, I'll get you in the end. But sometimes, I lost five times, but it was a world champion. And when I lost, I was glad I lost to Tim Witherspoon because it took, brought me down a peg or two to learn my trade and to go in there with a different vibe. But I was a young youngster, I was a late developer and I'll get more better when I'm older. That's what I think anyway. So you've done all the physical work every time when you went yeah. into box, but actually getting in the ring when you're facing the man that you're going to fight, what is yeah. mentally going through your mind at that point? A lot of nerves. You know what I mean? You wonder that, that what the guy going to do. Is he going to butt you? Is he going to try all them different moves? Because when it comes to money, people do any moves that they can do to help pay for their bills. So you've got to be red alert when you go into the boxing ring. That ain't a joke. And you've got to be focused. And, and then when the bell goes, watch that guy. You know what I mean? What move he may want to make or what style he's got. Suss him out. And if you can take him out, take him out. Now going through the camps that you've had and the career yeah. that you've had as well, a lot of highs and lows. Right. But what would you say is like the unseen cost of your success that like people didn't see? I've been training very, very hard. I set up training camp at Ashby de Luce at my mate's health farm, Stephen Perdue and Mrs. Perdue. But the strength, the determination and willpower that I've got is unbelievable. Yeah. And I even got it today. I train every day. I train twice a day. I look after myself. Sometimes I go off the rails a little bit, but I do train. Like this morning, I got up at three o'clock and I trained. That's great. You know what I mean? I had a seam out, I had a hot tub afterwards and whatever and relax myself. I'm not here, I'm not going to be there forever, but while I'm here now, I'm enjoying what I reap, what you sow from boxing, you know? Well, it's important to stay level, isn't it? And um, stay focused and stay happy and... I'm a single man, so, you know what I mean, I can enjoy myself much more better than having the pressure of someone in my ear. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm very, very happy to be gone. I've never been in this position for a very long time, you know, so that I'm free, great. you know, be let out of prison. <laughs> Frank, I want to talk to you about Mike Tyson, the second fight that you had, your first defence. You mentioned that your eye got detached. Um, for the right. McCall fight. And I know you've had mm. recurring problems throughout your career before that. Really, do you think that fight should have happened? Um, with the eye that I had, it shouldn't have happened. But, you know I mean? I've got a family to provide food for and whatever. So I had to go through with it. 
You know what I mean? Whatever. Can you explain why Mike Tyson was your first title defence? Because it was a contract. Don King and Frank Warren took me up to the, the hotel. I think it was one of them posh hotels in London. And they took me in there. And I, weren't, I, I wasn't in a desperate position. I didn't have nowhere. The last chance saloon, they offered me a contract. and said that if you beat Oliver McCall, the next fight would be Mike Tyson. They got more money than me. And I was a champion. And I signed the contract before him. I don't know in life. It was weird. I thought I was a champion and Tyson just come out of prison and he got more than me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that doesn't... That's pretty bonkers, to be honest. What was the split in the end? <laughs> you, you were like... Four, um, that's... <laughs> was 40. It was like... It was less than that. It was less than that. All right. Yeah. Let's not say. <laughs> should have got more, basically, is the moral of the story there. It should, it should <laughs> but at the end of the day, I got my title and that's what I, uh, I went in there for, you know? Yeah, no, fair enough. Look, retiring from professional sports documented as being very difficult for a lot of sports people. So can you talk us through your experience, Frank? It's very, very difficult because I get bored and know what to do. At least I have <laughs> the time to focus and concentrate if I had a fight coming on there. Sometimes when you're at home, you don't know what to do. I learn how to hoover. I learn how to cook. I live by myself for 15 years in my house. I feel like sometimes I'm, I'm I'm in prison. You know what I mean? Sometimes you want to go out. Not people harassing you. That, that's the the people, the, the the fans. Some of them you got to respect anybody that you meet. You know what I mean? But yeah, I try and look after myself. But well, that's good. You're, look, you're still tremendously popular. Um, back in 1996, actually, you were the second most popular man in Britain behind Princess yeah. Diana. Um, yeah. Princess <laughs> it's a little stat for you there, Frank, to be honest. Yeah, cheers. Yeah, nice. I want to I wanna talk about your mental health because you've spoken very openly about your battle with yeah. it, um, and in particular, bipolar disorder. So when were you diagnosed? I was diagnosed, I think, about four, about six years ago I was diagnosed with bipolar, but I don't understand about bipolar, but it's a very not a very friendly, not a very, very nice thing to have. It's a mood step a swing sort of thing, you know what I mean? But yeah, bipolar you've got to try and live with it. My way of dealing with bipolar that I train very hard and train harder to get rid of the the feelings of bipolar. Do you think that there were signs of any issues during your boxing career or even when you're a kid? When I was a kid, I was I had bipolar because the things that I used to do, if my mum told me to do something, I would do the opposite. You know what I mean? If she told me to come in at 8 o'clock, I'd come in at um, 11 o'clock. So I don't know if that's got to do with any bipolar. I was ready to... to my mum was a lady that, if I'd done something wrong, she was big, bigger than me. She was about 17 stone, and she would lean on me and give me the beating of my lifetime if I didn't bear myself. And I've got a lot of beatings of my mum, my mum and my dad. He was more serious, my dad. But I can't say that on this podcast because I, he, he, nah, he's a serious, serious man, my dad. So, do you think that like fame and public attention helped or like hindered your mental health journey? I don't really. No, it, I don't put no blame onto anybody with um, mental health. It's just something that I've got bipolar, and yeah. you know, I mean, you got to sort of like watch it because sometimes you go. <laughs> Go to a shop, you buy about... When you're supposed to buy one thing, you buy about five things. But it ain't nice at all. You've got to manage it day to day. Day to day, and week to week, month to month, year to year. You've got to watch it all the time. But my way of getting out of it, or not getting out of it, but 
you know what I mean, keeping a, a, a level on it is train. Meditate, yeah, yeah. do yoga, pilates, get plenty of massages and try and look after yourself. Especially in the time what we've had these last two years that we've been through a lot of pressure with everybody not having the, the bug or whatever. Yeah. I thank God I never had it. But I know some people who did have it and it really took it out of them. What advice would you give to someone who's been diagnosed with bipolar disorder or any kind of mental health issue and doesn't know where to turn? Yeah, go and try and get some advice from your doctor, you know what I mean? Um, and try and take some heat of what he says, but try and look after yourself, go for walks, try and join a club, swimming club, and look after yourself and try and work, work it from there. When I feel hyper and I feel um, stressed, I just go out and go for a run or even go for a walk. It'd be amazing what a, a walk will do to clear your head. Yeah, yeah, no, fair enough. And uh, Frank... I just want to put you on a spot of a question. No problem. If I can. Do you think you would have retired if it wasn't for your eye? I think I would have carried on, to be quite honest, because I'm 61 this year and I feel like 21. And <laughs> what I see out there, it doesn't really... It, no, I don't, I'm not dissing anybody out there, but it's a different era. If they were in my era, we would eat them up like fish yeah. and chips. Yeah, yeah. But you, you found a new purpose with your foundation. What, what inspired you to start up the Frank Bruno Foundation? I've, been, I've been sectioned about six times. And every time I've been sectioned, there's people been in there are suffering and people are giving them tablets to do and it's making them suffer even more. So I wanted to try and help people going through mental health, especially men, because men don't talk about mental health. They try and put it under the table in case it brings shame upon the family or the person himself feels shame that they've got something. But there's a lot of people being very, very understanding there are a lot of places you can go to to get advice but the Frank Bruno Foundation is just to help people go through mental health especially men because men you know what I mean they're like Rambo they don't want to commit that they're feeling down and they're a little bit weak you know what I mean and some people say oh here comes a, the nutter some bully people like at work if they knew something was wrong with you they'll try and bully you you know but I'm just trying to help people with mental health because I've been there myself so all I can do is try and help people. It's a non-contact boxing place that you go down, do a little bit of pads, go in the room, sit down and go through your life and what's making you feel this way and how we can change and help you. And I think it's a good idea. Because yeah. I've got experience in being sectioned and taking them tablets like it's smarties. <laughs> well, you know, on that, having that experience as well, means that you understand where they're coming from as well, people with mental health issues or bipolar disorder oh, and stuff like that. Definitely, yeah, definitely. I feel for a lot of people because a lot of men have been coming up to me now and explaining it's so nice that I've come out and tried to help and get give the men a kick up their backside and go and seek, seek some help, you know? But we're all men and sometimes we can be stubborn. Yeah. Do you think that's ever going to change? Do you think we can change? They issues. have to change, you know what I mean? There's a lot of people committing suicide now. So if you didn't ring a mate that, you know what I mean, you've got to ring someone, all you've got to say, are you all right? Yeah. You know, how are you feeling? And just go, go, get off the phone or, or go somewhere. But people don't show that love so, these days, you know what I mean? Don't give a shit about people or your friend and whatever. I think that what you're doing is incredible and it sounds like you've got this new purpose. You've got opened up a branch in Northampton. I think at yeah. the end of this month, uh, so by the time that this podcast is launched, 
probably be open in Oxford as well. And then you've got this yeah. London branch, I believe, in 2023 yeah. planned as well. Just going to finish up with some closing questions, Frank. How would you like to be remembered in years to come? Just a boy from South London has done very, very well. I could have gone the other way. I could have been in and out of prison. But my mum and my dad put the fear into me that don't bring the police to the house. And then lastly, if you were to speak to that younger version of yourself right now, what would you say? There's a um, lot of things in life that footballers are getting a lot of money. Uh, rugby players are not getting that much money. There's people getting money in boxing. And if you want to do something and shine your light on yourself, you don't get involved with boxing. Because if you look after yourself, get a good lawyer behind you, you know what I mean? The, the world could be your oyster. I love it. Frank, thanks ever so much, mate. You absolute legend. And um, thank you. It's been it's been an absolute pleasure. Take it easy, boss. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Look after you. Cheers. Bye, Wes. Cheers, boss. Bye, boss.